This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. As we mentioned, there is more news surrounding Facebook, both directly and indirectly. The indirect is the fact that Cambridge Analytica, the company at the heart of the latest scandal for Facebook, is going to cease operations in the wake of this scandal. The direct is that Facebook, with many of these issues surrounding people's data and wanting to make changes to better protect said data, is going to start their own dating site. We'll delve into these couple of topics as well as a few other points going on with Facebook right now. Joining us to discuss, Jennifer Goldbeck, Director of the Social Intelligence Lab at the University of Maryland, as well as a professor professor of information studies. She's also author of the book, Introduction to Social Media Investigation, A Hands-On Approach. And also with us, Andrea Matuishan, Professor of Law and Professor of Computer Science at Northeastern University. She's also an affiliate scholar at the Center for Internet and Security at Stanford Law School and a senior fellow of the Cyber Statecraft Initiative at the Center on International Security at the Atlantic Council. Jennifer and Andrea, as always, great to have you both with us today. Thank you for your time. Thanks. Good to be here. Thank you. Uh, Let's start with Cambridge Analytica. Um, Andrea, any surprise that, that they are shutting down? Well, in light of the firestorm that's erupted in multiple countries around their connections, allegedly with the 2016 election, it seems unsurprising that they may want to rebrand and uh, recreate themselves as a different entity. We've seen that strategy with other types of corporate scandals in the past. Um, And indeed, the Wall Street Journal is reporting that several of the key players, including their former CEO, have begun working on a new company called Emmer Data that allegedly is housed at the same New York address as Cambridge Analytica. So um, the information commissioner inquiry in the UK is continuing, and that inquiry appears to be relatively broad in its scope. So we will see what that yields. But in the meantime, it seems like uh, we should also be aware of the next generation of Cambridge Analytica and keep an eye out for how the former business model will be potentially resuscitated in the new version of the entity. So who do you think is doing that watching per se? Is it the regulators for the federal government? Uh, who, who really does will that fall under? The press is going to be our biggest asset in terms of keeping tabs on how this story evolves and to ensure that some of the challenges that citizens making decisions in the 2016 election faced won't be repeated in the same way. Uh, There's certainly additional space for government oversight, but we've generally seen a restrained approach to that kind of oversight inquiry. Um, Congress certainly could get involved here, but uh, we have not seen movement on that point. So from my perspective, it's going to fall on the press to keep us informed about how this next generation of big data leveraging in political contexts will take us into the next 
set of elections. And, and Jennifer, I, I guess in terms of if they are going to, quote unquote, rebrand, it probably wouldn't take a lot for a company like this to do that. No, uh, I think it will be really straightforward. And they kind of said in their uh, press release, like, oh, well, you know, we know we can't just change our name. And I was thinking, <laughs> like, that's ridiculous. Of course, you're just going to change your name because, you know, regardless of the scandal that's come up around this, there are absolutely politicians and organizations who are going to want to do what they did, right? They can see that there's power behind that and that they can have influence. Um, so you're not just going to shut that down and let someone else move into the space. You're going to change your name and start up at the same address. Uh, so it's not at all surprising that they did this. And yeah, it'll be really straightforward because the technology is something that they were experimenting with. It was evolving. And uh, even if they throw out everything they've done before, it's real straightforward to just loop that right back into where it was and seemingly very profitable for them to do that i think so you know i i think i totally agree with what andrea said and you know i think politicians are going to be wary of someone reporting in the next election cycle oh hey they're using cambridge analytica now um but you know they want that kind of influence and ability to reach voters and so you know if it's not through old Cambridge Analytica or rebranded Cambridge Analytica. It will be through a competitor that starts up, which I think we'll probably see a lot of. Um, So this is something I think is here to stay. Which I I guess, Andrea, I mean, when you think about the timing, and obviously a lot of what has happened with Cambridge Analytica looked at the the 2016 election, but obviously we are already in the process of the 2018 midterms. and, And I would think with this being so fresh that this would be something that maybe people in Washington, D.C. would want to keep an eye on. Uh, Absolutely. And we have not seen the last of these data dynamics. In fact, it's likely that the data dynamics are going to get even more complicated. Uh, There was an article that I was reading just yesterday about how allegedly a candidate has used the deep fakes technology to superimpose the head of one political figure onto the body of another in order to create an advertisement that sends a crafted message that does not map onto the reality of whether someone actually met someone in physical space. So the ability of technology to generate an alternative reality is a challenge that we're going to have to face head on as a society at some point. And it's going to take cooperation, not only from regulators, but also from the people who are deploying and and building these technologies uh, to create the opportunity for citizens to have a fair information space as they make their political choices for for the benefit of democracy. Well, how aware do you think the government is and and regulators of some of these technologies that obviously companies like Cambridge Analytica are bringing up? Obviously, when you're talking about all the publicity that has occurred here, you would think it would throw up more red flags, especially with a 2018 election. And then, you know, we're going to have to be thinking about this for the 2020 presidential election at some point. The government uh, government regulators are certainly aware, but the question of whether regulators are aware and whether regulators have the goodwill and the opportunity slash political capital to do something about it, that's actually two separate inquiries. And so in order for there to be a meaningful regulatory shift, there needs to be a political culture receptive to that future regulatory shift. Um, And while there are certainly well-intentioned public servants who would like nothing more than to see a positive 
nudge coming from government to keep information access, particularly on political matters, uh, as robust, uh, robustly rooted in truth as possible. Uh, there are sometimes countervailing political drivers that make a regulatory change in that direction unpopular at a given political moment. So the next set of elections will give us a hint into whether we are likely to see a regulatory shift toward thinking through these questions in a forward-looking way to ensure uh, the Political discourse is as fair to citizens as, as possible, um, but that is an open question. So I have no answer for you. Yeah, Jennifer, there's also the story which uh, it was in the Wall Street Journal and, and other outlets as well about uh, the testimony over in London of uh, the gentleman, the creator of the app that actually kind of started all this, that harvested all the data. His name's Alexander Klogan. Uh, and he came out and said that all of that data that was collected from Facebook had no value to, to Cambridge Analytica, which I, I think not many people are going to believe uh, in that testimony that it had no value in, uh, whatsoever. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I think it definitely had value. Um, you know, how much value that data had and how much impact what Cambridge Analytica did, I think is a really open question. Um, you know, on one hand, they at some point were claiming that they won the election for Trump. Uh, and then once people got upset about that, they started saying, well, we don't know that we had any impact. Right. And it, look, I think the reality is that we don't know what kind of impact that had. You know, they were showing ads to people that seemed to be very targeted based on these profiles that they were inferring. We don't know how good their algorithms were to find stuff up, out about people in the first place, right? If they had a profile about me, who knows if it was accurate or not. And then even if they got that right, once they showed me these ads, like, did they resonate with me? Did they change anything? We still don't know, like, as a research community, how much we can impact what people do and what they think based on the stuff that we show them. And so, uh, you know, I think he's trying to have it in the best way for him right now and saying, well, you know, that data wasn't really useful. Uh, but the fact is, like, we don't know. I think they certainly valued having it. Um, he claims that he didn't violate Facebook's terms of service, but as someone who agreed to those, I think he probably did. Uh, mm -hmm. Facebook certainly thinks he did. Yeah. And so, you know, he's trying to minimize it. But, you know, there's a big open space to think about what impact their kind of techniques have, because we honestly don't know at this point. So it, when you look at, let's focus on Facebook for a second. Obviously, a lot of attention has been put forward uh, at Mark Zuckerberg, obviously testifying on Capitol Hill. When you look at Facebook in the wake of this, how do you think they have done in trying to, I mean, obviously in the in the immediate, we some people believe that, that Mark Zuckerberg and the company did not do a great job of handling uh, the reaction to that. How do you think that they are starting to address it? Are they doing a better job of looking long-term, Jen, about uh, people's data and, and all of these uh, issues that have popped up? I think they have a lot of thinking to do. This is a really huge problem and issue for them going forward. But 
you know, it seems like they're doing some of the right things. Um, on the day, I think, that Zuckerberg did his first testimony in front of Congress, they made a big change to how APIs can access data. And they've been doing this kind of incrementally every time somebody gets upset. Um, but, you know, I think it's good that they're thinking about that. The biggest change that I've seen, I think yesterday was announced, that they have added this feature to clear your history on Facebook. So this is sort of like the clear history that you have in your browser. You can go into Facebook. It will clear all of the interactions that you've had on websites, all the memory that Facebook has of sites that you've gone to. Um, and Zuckerberg said, you know, this may make your experience on Facebook worse because the things that we target you with might not be good. Uh, surveys say that people don't really care, like they're fine having ads that are less targeted at them. And so that, I think, is a great thing. I'm, I'm surprised <laughs> that they did this because um, they're essentially giving up a lot of that historical data. But I think their understanding that people want to see from them moves towards privacy. Now, is this just one thing that, like, they weren't getting a lot of value out of, but it sounds really good. You know, we don't know. Um, but if this is a signal of the direction that they're going and really giving people a lot more control to delete data that Facebook has to potentially control more of that data, I think that's a great thing. So I think there's definitely a to-be-seen status that we're in right now, but they are at least starting to take some moves that signal it could go in a good direction. So I'm trying to have a nugget of optimism. <laughs> Andrew, your thoughts? Um, I agree with uh, basically everything Jen said. Uh, the uh, one element that they could do and that I've been watching for is to sue the parties who allegedly abused the user agreement. So if they assert that someone violated their user agreement, a statement of aggressive enforcement because of the consequential harm that is certainly perceived by their users, would dictate that they might sue the, the researcher or the follow-on users of that data that, that was allegedly abused. Um, and we haven't seen that yet. So um, the changes in the technology itself that Jen pointed to are certainly positive indicators of movement toward a more user-controlled uh, interface, um, I'll cabin that with the marketing research that says that it's really only the last six months of user behavior that accurately or that as accurately targets uh, the preferences and buying habits of users. So there, if marketing research is accurate on that finding, they're not giving that much up in terms of giving people the ability to clear their data, figuring that most people probably won't because users are creatures of habit and defaults tend to yeah. dictate the way that we use technologies. Um, but it, it's certainly a step in the right direction. Their user agreement is still not understandable, even remotely, to an average person. Yeah. And it would take several hours just to read everything that is connected. And as a contract professor, let me tell you that I tried to make sure that I had every bit of incorporated text and every subsidiary contract that they link to, and I can't be sure that I have a handle on all of the terms that I'm bound by as a user of Facebook. Um, somewhere over 100 pages of aggregation, I stopped aggregating. So for an average person, we're talking about over four hours of reading. And that's unreasonable, uh, particularly since it's legally binding text written by a lawyer. Um, so at some point, that whole end-user license agreement regime is going to come crashing down because we're reaching a point of hilarity where 
no one can really believe that people understand these contracts that they're clicking on. Well, and exactly. And, and Jen, I mean, they have the expectation that that the average user of Facebook would be able to, one, go through all of that and two be able to understand that that's unrealistic at this point. It is, you know, and we've actually studied this in my lab, what people understand, and uh, people underestimate how much data gets shared outside of Facebook. If you have them read the end user agreement, they get a little bit better, but they don't get a ton better. They still don't really understand. And a lot of the language in there, you know, as Andrea pointed out, it's written by lawyers, intentionally vague to cover a lot of what they do. But one line that has come up a lot in there is that, you know, we could use your data for research, right? It's like yeah. literally that one word that covers those crazy psychological experiments that they were doing on people, all sorts of um, things that you wouldn't expect just from that word. And so even if you do spend all those hours that uh, poor Andrea did reading this, you still might not really understand because you don't know what they're going to do. So I actually think there's a space, you know, not necessarily legally, but um, for kind of communications people to figure out how do we really communicate better to people what's going to happen with their data and what they're bound by. Um, We've found that like little entertaining videos can do a better job than the uh, data use agreement can. And so I think that's a space where if we want people to really understand this and agree to it, we have to get a lot better at communicating it to people, and we don't really know how to do that in a great way yet. Andrea, I'm guessing you needed more than one cup of coffee to be able to get through at least at least a couple of hours of this. <laughs> yeah, well, it was the logistics. Since, since I used to write these things for a living back in my corporate lawyer days, I know that the end game is simply to reserve maximum flexibility for the company and yeah. whatever they wish to do with the information. So in a nutshell, that's where you end up at the end of the day. And that means that if there are certain kinds of data abuses that as a society we're not okay with, we need to step in or states need to step in in particular and write in good defaults into those contracts. So we do that with landlord-tenant agreements. We don't let landlords landlords turn off the heat on tenants in the middle of winter. Why? Because we passed an ordinance or a law that said landlords can't do that regardless of what the contract says. We can use that same approach here to make sure that all user agreements have a baseline of fairness, even if people don't read the agreement. 844-942-7866 is the number if you would like to join in with your comments or questions. We're talking about a variety of issues surrounding Facebook, including Cambridge Analytica going to uh, cease operations uh, and other items. 844-942-7866. Or if you can't get your phone, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Now, Andrea, uh, or I should say Jennifer, as all of this is going on with the data <laughs> that Facebook is trying to deal with, they have decided that this is the right time to start a dating site. And <laughs> I I, I kind of sit back and, and wonder, maybe they should have put this off for a few months just to make sure that they get all of their ducks in a row before they even add in more personal data to, to, their, uh, to their site. Man, you're not kidding. Like, these things were literally announced in the same meeting. Like, here's all these new privacy controls, and here's how you can share your profile to date people. Right. Uh, Look, I mean, on one hand, uh, you know, people who do online dating, which I did in my past, uh, are going to look everybody up on Facebook anyway. And uh, there's a reasonable argument that you have stuff up there that you might want to share. But 
it immediately, like, like I said, as someone who's done online dating in the past, like you're very concerned about privacy and what you share with some person you don't know because there's a lot of creepy people on online dating sites. Um, and look, having seen what they're planning to do, so this hasn't rolled out yet. Um, we just kind of have what they've explained. It looks like they have some consideration for privacy in there, uh, but I would want really strict controls. They seem to have focused on the fact that you don't necessarily want your friends to see your dating profile, and so they aren't people that they would match you up with. But there's a lot of things I wouldn't want potential dates to see that I have on my Facebook profile, right? There's a lot of stuff I intended to share just with friends. How you can control that and what part of which profiles will be merged is unclear. So, you know, I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing, but yeah, it comes at sort of an awkward moment. Andrew? Yeah, I, I agree on the, the timing. The timing certainly will give some people pause. And just as Jen was saying again, in my 20s, I was, I'm really glad that Facebook did not exist in my 20s because I think <laughs> there would have been some awkward social moments where I was refusing to give people my, my uh, f- friendship requests or validating their friendship requests to me. But anyway, um, it's, it's an indicator of the social timing that sometimes in, in Facebook announcements. Um, for some people, this seems like the natural next step. Um, humorously, it was uh, someone from the Match.com family of companies who pointed out that they find this timing kind of interesting, but they, they welcome Facebook to the, the industry. Yes. Um, we'll, see, we'll, we'll see how the, the interactions happen on a, on a regular basis as the, the product gets rolled out. Uh, but it has the potential for perhaps triggering some of the same privacy concerns as the ill-fated Google Buzz incident did. So oh. I, this is ancient history, but uh, you may remember Google rolled out this um, integrative in, in instant messaging tool where they sucked in your contact list and they connected you with everyone you've communicated with. Well, the problem hap- that arose yeah. was that it happens sometimes that people talk to or email with people they really don't want to be more deeply connected with because it is an abusive spouse or it is yeah. um, a casual business contact, etc. And so uh, they set the default at too aggressive a sharing default, and they ended up with an FTC consent decree uh, impacting their enterprise for the next 20 or 30 years because of that product. So there is space for uh, technological imperfection and over-aggressive sharing. And so I hope that Facebook has carefully thought through the defaults of what will be shared and what won't be shared um, in these situations, uh, because they're at a pivotal trust moment in terms of public perception of their enterprise. Well, it, but I guess the interesting part of it to me, Andrew, is also, I mean, obviously the timing is, it, it's incredible to do as as Jen laid out in, in the same meeting. Uh, but the fact that, that seemingly they are still a company that is looking to find ways to monetize their business. And certainly uh, they have found uh, several of them, but they have still, they are still looking for ways to be able to monetize the fact that they have 200 some odd million people or whatever the number is around the world that are using, uh, using this site. And they need to continue as a business to look for those new ways. Now that again, they just have to be very careful about how they go about this. 
Definitely. And, you know, sometimes what's old is new again. I think people are ready to pay $3 a month to just have a bare bones Facebook experience where they can talk to their high school friends, talk to their college friends, see pictures of people's children and not become the product and have advertising thrown at them. If you want to ratchet it up to a premium package at $5 a month, that's a very healthy revenue stream that I think many consumers are ready to pay. 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter at BizRadio111 uh, or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. The other part to this, Andrea, or I should say uh, Jennifer, is the fact that these are sites that, that are pretty popular and pretty profitable. And, and I would think that they are, from a financial perspective, something that, that Facebook would want to try and expand amongst probably a variety of different avenues that they are looking to do to, again, monetize Facebook so that they can, uh, that they can keep up with technology. Yeah. And look, I think Facebook really just wants to be the Internet for people, right? Like when you go online, what that really means is going on Facebook and anything that you want to do online, they would like to be able to do for you. So, you know, on one hand, yeah, this is a profitable space. It's kind of a natural space for them to go into because it's social anyway. Um, But there are these concerns. And I think, you know, Andrea bringing up Google Buzz is such a good example because that was before Google's current social network, Google Plus, which nobody uses either. Um, And I think that's why, like, they did, Google did such a bad job in terms of understanding privacy and trust and the control that people want, that it kind of killed the public's perception of them as a company you could trust with your social data. And, And that kind of carried over into all the products that they've launched since then. They totally could have competed with Facebook, and I think Buzz is a big reason they didn't. So Facebook has to be super careful here if they want to compete with Match or all the other dating sites that are out there because they have a lot more data, which means they could screw up in a bigger way that doesn't happen on Match.com because I tell them the data that I want them to share. So Facebook should be super careful about making these extremely limited and having almost no crossover between those profiles until people really explicitly do that or else they could – create this same perception of themselves as a company that's untrustworthy in a space like dating where it's very sensitive. Great having you both with us. Uh, Jennifer, Andrea, as always, great to talk with you both. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks very much. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 